Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. The Song of Solomon, a.k.a. The Song of Songs, a.k.a. What's Love Got to Do With It? Alan? Oh, indeed. What has love got to do with it? That's kind of going to be an interesting thing to discover. Well, why an entire book of the Bible seeming to focus on romantic love? How does, a, how does a book like this even become part of the canon of Scripture? It lacks an obvious religious theme like the other biblical books, and even its language is almost embarrassingly forward. So how did it find its way into the Bible? It is, and that's an excellent question. Um, it, it is entirely different, isn't it, from all the other books. Uh, this one book is over against 65 others. And I think the reason why it got into the sacred scriptures was because on the first instance, it was considered, the author was considered to be Solomon. And, and secondly, it was the allegorical interpretation that it enjoyed for, for so long. Allegorical interpretation was a way of, of trying to describe the relationship between God and his people uh, as between a man and a woman, a groom and his bride. Um, so those would have been the two major reasons why it got into the canon of Holy Scripture. And interestingly, nowadays, very few, if, in fact, if any, I don't know of any scholars who believe that it is Solomonic in origin or that it should be interpreted allegorically. So on, on that human level, I would say it's very uh, dubious how it got in. However... On a spiritual uh, level, I believe that it was God who wanted this and intended this to be part of, of sacred scripture. And, and the Song of Solomon, of course, has been beloved through the ages. It's been affirmed by the church. It endorses and dignifies sex as an important part of a genuine love relationship uh, within marriage between a man and a woman. It is part of God's creation, and it was depicted as something absolutely beautiful and to be enjoyed. One of the ancient rabbis, Rabbi Akaba, said the entire universe is not as worthy as the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. I, I like that. I think that's really nice. Another rabbi said, holy as the song of pure natural love, the holiness of human life. So by its inclusion in the Bible, the song addresses the meaning of love. You know, you asked a moment ago, what's love got to do with it? I think the song addresses the, the meaning of love, the meaning of sex, the meaning of human sensuality as divinely intended and divinely sanctified. Mm. And so that's why, that's why it's in. It's a good, those are good reasons why. I think we need a book like this in, in Holy Scripture, actually. Well, you say within a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, do you derive that from the text itself, or is that simply a Christian principle or belief imposed upon the book? Uh, no, it's not imposed upon the book. It's clearly uh, the relationship between a man and a woman. I mean, it's, it's obviously that's, that's what it's about. Um, I, I believe we have an actual uh, reference to a wedding between the couple in chapter 3, for example, as the king, presumably Solomon's, maybe Solomon's entourage is greeting by the people on its way to consummate the marriage between the king and, 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 and a maiden. Sex outside of marriage for the ancient Jew would have been an anathema. And needless to say, the action between the characters in the book is incontroversibly between a man and a woman. Uh, but, but enough of that later. Does the Song of Solomon, is it maybe meant to provide a some insight into the nature of true love, genuine, genuine love? You know, I really think it does. Um, you know, I, I would even go as far as, Kip, I would go as far as to say that, that this little book may hold the, the key to life itself. 
and the key to life in terms of human love. I think the book in many ways addresses selfless love. And, and here you see in chapter two, love is not selfless. You know, that she's not, she's not there yet. But to get to a place where, where we can love no matter what uh, may be the secret to life. The very climax of the book in chapter eight, where we read, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods destroy it. You know, the, the greatest weapon in the Christian's arsenal is love. And it's countercultural. It's contrary to all that we're told. It is contrary to our nature. It is revolutionary. The world says, you know, don't let people take advantage of you. Uh, the Christian message is, think of others more highly than you think of yourself. Uh, Jesus showed the example of self-denial, and he calls us to emulate him. You know, in, you know, in Mark chapter 8, you know, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and, and follow me. Mm. Or, or Paul writing to the church at Corinth, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we see that, you know, climactically in the cross. So in the Song of Solomon, love grows. I think it is progressive. And finally, it is not conditioned on being loved in return. But, you know, I, I, I just happened to listen to a song that John Denver wrote uh, on love. And, and it's, kind of, it's kind of amazing. You, know, he, uh, you may be aware of it. Some, some say love is holding on and some say letting go. And some say love is everything and some say they don't know. Perhaps love is like the ocean, full of conflict, full of pain, like a fire when it's cold outside or thunder when it rains. You know, it's kind of interesting. The, this quest for genuine love is ubiquitous. It's for everybody. Everyone is searching for love. Yeah. One of the best definitions that I've ever heard of love outside Scripture is that by a French Roman Catholic priest, Michel Quast, who said on one occasion that love is leaving oneself and going towards another. Our Robert Southwell, a 16th century priest, who said, not when I breathe, but when I love, I live. And inter you know, it's interesting that it would come from two Catholic priests and the old monks, you know, practicing self-flagellation in order to kind of deny themselves. I think conceptually they were right. The expression was wrong. But the idea of, of denying themselves, I think, even though they may have gotten it wrong in terms of, you know, punishing themselves. But in our culture, there are lots of people who are hurting, who are looking for love. Dating sites are, are flourishing, and psychologists and counselors speak of self-realization and self-preservation and drawing boundaries and protecting the self. And I may be getting into trouble here, but, you know, Christian faith speaks of the death of the self. In the book of Job, for example, the opening chapters tend to be self-centered. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why am, I, why am I in such pain? Why am I being punished? And, and when he realizes he's asking the wrong question, not the why, but the who, and, and that's for, for another podcast, of course, when he turns to God and he begins to realize that this is a God-centered world in which he lived, it's all about God, it's not about him, then faith begins to deal with the death of self, and he finds meaning and peace at the end of the book. I think the problem in America is that too many people are looking out for, for self, and society promotes the exaltation of self. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think love is to be given and passed on. I, I don't know who it was that once said, the love of parents goes to their children, but the love of these children goes to their children. You know, it's not doesn't necessarily 
come back uh, to the parents themselves. And uh, I, I remember a little gruesome poem uh, I came across years ago. I don't know why I didn't throw it out, but, but it's always intrigued me. It's a story of a boy who falls in love with a woman who demands the heart of his mother. It, it, here's what it says. A poor lad one and a lad so trim gave his heart to her who loved not him. Said she, fetch me tonight your mother's heart to feed my dog. To his mother's house went that young man. Killed her, cut out her heart and ran. But as he was running, look you, he fell. The heart rolled out on the ground as well. But the lad, as the heart lay rolling, heard that the heart was speaking. And this was the word. The heart was weeping and crying so small. Are you hurt, my child? Are you hurt at all? It's a strange poem. But but the idea behind it, you know, is here's a mother who, you know, even being murdered by her son, still loves him. There's nothing he can do to... to, um, And I think a mother's love is the closest love there is to God. You know, I, I just... There's something about mothers who who love their children unconditionally. We're trusting the wrong things. And there's a loss of connectivity with God. That's the great task of the church. Um, and, and Walter Brueggemann, a great theologian, declares that the urgent task of the church is threefold. One, to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, to grieve in a society that practices denial, and to express hope in a society that lives in despair. So this little book of the Song of Solomon, I think, dare I say, may hold the key to life itself. That's interesting. So to look at it inductively, I would say that there could be as many as six sections in the book that I would call desire, discouragement, disclosure, difficulties, delight, and, and destiny. Um, if, you know, if, if you're not upset with too much alliteration. <laughs> well, let's start with the first D. You said desire. Yeah, um, that would basically go from chapter uh, 1 through the beginning of chapter 2, I would say, as far as as verse 7 of chapter 2. And and it's a dialogue between the couple. I mean, it's a beautiful dialogue. The bride even describes herself uh, as being sick with love. I I, I love that expression. In chapter 2 and verse 5, she declares that she is sick with love. So what you have here is love's beginning. Love's desire, if you will. And the bride opens up basically from verses 2 to 7 with longing in the opening verses. And with that longing comes her own sense of unworthiness. And in verse 7, you know, her great desire uh, to be with the groom. And then you have, in verse 8, the, the chiming in of this other party. So this adds to the drama. You've got the bride, you've got the groom, but you've got an audience as well in this book. You know, you've got the, what are called the daughters of Jerusalem. And then after the daughters of Jerusalem intrude a little bit there in verse 8, then the groom speaks and he speaks of her in, in glowing terms. He compares her to a steed in, in beauty and in dignity. And then in verse 12, 13, 14, uh, the bride speaks again. So you've got this constant dialogue between the bride and the groom. The bride with her sense of longing and the groom with his sense of, of assurance and then the bride extolling the joys of, of love itself and what love means for her. So you have here a picture, uh, particularly in verse 16, um, of, a, of a couple who are deeply in love with each other and they're speaking to each other. She speaks of her 
unworthiness at the beginning of chapter 2, he interjects and says, even if that were the case, he turns her words of, of modesty into beauty. And then the bride speaks again, extolling the delight of being with him. Overwhelmed by his love, she says, I'm lovesick, I'm sick with love. And she talks about the, the experiences of, of being possessed by love. I mean, it's just, and then the groom speaks, uh, bringing the section to an end in verse 7 by simply saying, this is how it should be. And it's just lovely. So you have the groom saying, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly lovely. You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And she says, But I'm just but a rose of Sharon. A rose of Sharon, by the way, was simply a scentless flower. So, you know, she was basically saying, I'm not worthy of your love. And, and yet he says, Ah, but as lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. I mean, this, this is just amazing stuff that he brings to an end then in verse 7 of chapter 2. Desire, that young puppy love, sort of uh, love at first sight kind of a picture of of what happens first, right? When we're first attracted to somebody, it seems. Yes, that's true. But, you know, the next section tells us that love doesn't always run smoothly, does it? Well, then, um, you, then you move on to discouragements, is that right? Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, what I call discouragements, you know, because I wanted to begin with a D. But <laughs> the next section would run from the eighth verse of chapter two through the fifth verse of chapter three. And again, it contains some of the most beautiful love lyrics in the springtime. Absolutely amazing. Uh, the bride is speaking again. She, she sings of his search and, and love for her in uh, verses eight and verses nine. But she points out that there's some kind of barrier. There's something that, is, that has come between them. And the groom is reaching out to her in verses 10 through 15. And, and frankly, I think this is one of the most beautiful love lyrics of all time. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. See the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their vagrance. Arise, come my love, my, my beautiful one. Come with me. So you have this lyric, if you will, that all nature is responsive to the return of summer. Will you not, my bride, be, be responsive to my love? And then in verse 14, he articulates his desire to be with her. Show me your face, he says. And then uh, in verse 15, let nothing, however small, spoil any part of their relationship. Uh, he refers to the little foxes that ruin the vines. So don't let anything come between us. And then in, in the bride responds to that in verses 16 through the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, she relishes his love for her but does not interestingly respond to his invitation. And then when she does, she discovers that he's gone by the beginning of chapter three. He's not there. And so she begins her search for him until eventually in verse four, she's reunited with him. And again, the bridegroom then basically says in verse five of chapter three, this is the way it should be. There's the natural break. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles, by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So these are not major discouragements. There are some major ones may come a little later, but the groom woos the bride. The bride does not respond as, as quickly and as, um, as readily as maybe 
uh, he was expecting. And then when she does get to the, the door, he isn't there. Oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And so she begins, she begins the search for him and ultimately finds him. And again, they find themselves one with each other. It's lovely. Sounds like anything that you might see today. <laughs> yes, it is. Nothing's changed, has it? Dare we say that she appears perhaps to focus more on his love for her rather than her love for him? Is that the problem? I think the problem is the problem of self, is it not? And you'll notice, for example, in chapter 2, verse 16, you'll notice that it says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Now notice the order in which the writer puts that. My beloved is mine, and I am his. And then over in chapter 6, verse 3, the same quote exactly, but in reverse. Now that's significant. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And then if you look at chapter 7, verse 10, you have the same formula, but again with a difference. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Now, it's interesting, in, in his commentary, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, talked about this representing three stages of grace. First stage of grace, we say, my beloved's is mine, and I'm his. As kind of, you know, an afterthought. Oh, I, yeah, I belong to him, but he belongs to me. And then when you grow in maturity, you reverse the order. This is Hudson Taylor's uh, thesis. That you then begin to realize, hey, I belong to him. Oh, and he belongs to me too. And then the third stage of grace, Hudson Taylor would say, where the self is lost altogether. I am his and his desire is for, for me. There is no he belongs to me. It reminds me of a story I, I heard some time ago of an old fellow around 90 years of age was asked by his pastor. He said to him, dear friend, uh, do you love Jesus? And the, the deeply wrinkled face lit up with a smile uh, that some that, that had been following Christ for some 67 years of serving the Lord. And, and he grasped the preacher's hand with, with both of his and he said, oh, he said, I can, I can tell you something better than that preacher. And the pastor said, and what is that? And the old fellow says, oh, sir, he loves me. Mm. You know? And yeah. I think that's it. And that's what Hudson Taylor, you see, that's the loss of the self. And I think that's always the problem. We get in the way of our own happiness oftentimes, especially when it comes to, to love, I think. Well, we're selfish, I think. Our natural tendency is towards selfishness. Yeah, it is. So we've hit the first two Ds. We've hit desire and discouragement. Your third D is disclosure. Does that seem to follow from their difficulties? It may or may not, depending on how we view the book. You know, the ongoing drama or isolated pericopi or isolated events or isolated sections. And I, again, I, I would tend to think that there is some kind of continuity between the parts uh, but in any, in any measure, whether or not we can say that there is, whether or not is, this is an isolated section or not, it's a story of a wedding. Uh, and the greatness and the grandeur is captured in chapter 3, verses oh, 6 through, through 10, if you will, by the people, by the daughters of Jerusalem. And the emphasis in the final verse there is on the king himself. Uh, and that's particularly significant if that's an expression of the bride. And, and you know, it's not clear whether the bride is is making that statement or not in verse uh, 10 and verse 11. Go forth, O daughters of Jerusalem, and behold King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him. On the day of his wedding, 
on the day of the gladness of his heart. It's probably uh, the voice of the, of the bride speaking to the audience. And it is very impacting as such because basically the bride, if it is the bride, is saying, behold the king. Not the accompaniments to the king, not the, the paraphernalia of the king, not the accoutrement, if you will, of the king, but behold the king himself. Look at the king. You know, that's kind of uh, where that ends. So it is at that point that she's sort of walking away from herself and focusing her attention on her lover. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, because chapter four articulates an overwhelming love and its physical consummation. The bridegroom begins this section in chapter four. He describes her beauty. Now you'll notice in the first seven verses that in describing her beauty, he describes her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her temples, her neck, her breasts. Now, that's seven. <laughs> and seven, of course, is the, that biblical number of completion and perfection, you know? So here is sevenfold perfection in which he describes her. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. That's how he, that's how he describes her. It's not exactly the language we would use today. I mean, you know, you try to say to your beloved or to your wife, your neck is like the Tower of David built for an arsenal <laughs> whereupon hang a thousand bucklers. I think you might get a slap in the face, you know, but, but it's just... The splendor of, of his uh, sense of who she is and how beautiful she is. And then he entreats her to join him. Come, come with me, he says, in verse 8. And then in verses 9, 10, 11, he's enchanted by her. You have stolen my heart, he says. I mean, the language is absolutely lovely. Mm. And then in verses 12 and, and uh, 13, 14, 15, um, he is aroused by her, uh, by her purity and by her virginity he says to her you are in essence you are a garden my bride a garden locked that's a reference to her her purity a fountain that is sealed and then in verse 16 she invites him to consummate their love following the the chapter three the wedding of course you've got an interesting in the sequence there uh, let my beloved come to his garden and taste its choicest fruits. So it's very obvious what, uh, you know, what this is alluding to. And then the groom speaks at the beginning of chapter 5. I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather the myrrh. I eat the honeycomb. I drink the wine. And then this celebration of love, this consummation. The text then begins to fade and you have this celebration of love in verse 16. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. And so that section, you know, comes to a beautiful end. But, it's, you know, it, it, it's important to notice again in the final verse of chapter 4 that all the attention is on the groom and self is absent. Yeah. Tying into what we said just a moment ago. So that's the end of the next break basically the first verse of chapter five. And is that correct? Is, and then we move on to the next? Yes, we move into the, the next section would be chapter five and most of chapter six, which I have termed difficulties. So there's a positive, a negative, a positive, and now a negative? 
Is that right? That's life, isn't it, Kip? I mean, that isn't that life? Um, relationships are hard. And, and, you know, love is, is not the happy ever after kind of thing that we read about in, in fairy tales. And this is a, not a romanticized version of that is fed to us from Hollywood, um, you know, in terms of the movies and TV and so forth. You know, that, yes. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. All right. So let's dive into the difficulties. Well, the bride opens this section and um, she she obviously is asleep. And this section basically is uh, begins in chapter uh, five, verse two and. Uh, and continues into uh, most of chapter six. And it begins with the words, I slept, but my heart was awake. So she's asleep. Some have suggested this section, this whole section is a dream. But whether or not it's a dream, the groom is not present with her, you'll notice. My beloved is knocking uh, at the door. Open to me, my darling. And what, what we have here is, you know, I, well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not dressed, she says in verse, in verse three. You know, I've taken my clothes are off. How, how, can, how can I put them back on? And and uh, I, I've already washed my feet. How can I how can I soil them again? You know, uh, but my beloved put his hands to the latch. My heart was thrilled. I I rose. My fingers were dripped with liquid mare. I I opened. I opened my beloved, but but he's gone. So so basically, she's saying that she wasn't ready for him. You know, she just wasn't ready for him, and she failed to respond to him. Uh, and when she did respond, her response was too late. And, and when, when he, she opened the door and he was gone, she grieved his absence. And then in verse 7, you know, recriminations uh, follow as a result. You know, they, the watchmen found me. They, they beat me. They wounded me. They, they took away my clothing. Um, and then she entreats the help of the others. Uh, Daughters of Jerusalem, she says in verse 8. If you find my beloved, tell him I'm sick with love. So here you have this, this the, the, the touching words of entreaty from her suitor. If you find my beloved, tell him I am sick with love. I find this section really fascinating because the daughters of Jerusalem, basically then in verse 9, contrary to what you might imagine, basically ask, well, why should we bother? You know, they say, why, what's so special about your beloved that we should that we should try to find him for you. We're all busy people. You know, what's so special about your beloved? And then in verse 10, you have this amazing response of the bride to her beloved. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding. Uh, he, his head is the purest gold. His hair is wavy. His, his eyes are like doves. His cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are the, are the lilies and his arms are rods of gold. His body is, is ivory. His legs are pillars of marble. His, his appearance is like Lebanon. His mouth is sweetness. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Now, you'll notice that there are 10 things that she describes about him. And 10 is the other number of, of perfection. So this tenfold description, she basically pours out her love for him. Um, which, which when she's finished, you know, they say, I mean, in all probability, they're gone already. You know, you describe a guy this way. I mean, you know, I've, I've got to see this guy. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, of Murphy's wife. If you forgive the, the, the joke, uh, Murphy's wife, you know, who went uh, to report her husband missing to the police and, uh, and the police said, um, how long has he been missing? And she says, he's been gone for two years. 
And they said, oh, well, can you give us a description of him? And so she begin, begins to describe him. You know, well, he's, uh, he's absolutely handsome. He's got the most beautiful hair and you know, he's got the physique of, uh, of Mr. Atlas. And, you know, he's got muscles are just bulging. And her daughter sits uh, standing beside her, you know, tugs at her dress and says, Mommy, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like Daddy. And, and, and Murphy's wife says, well, who wants him back? You know, so, <laughs> so, so I know that's terrible, but you know, it's here you've got here you here you've got the bride, you know, extolling the beauty, you know. So it's no surprise that the daughters of Jerusalem join in the search, you know, because what you have here is, you know, in response to why should we bother? Of verse nine, you have. Where is your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did, which way did your, your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? And so the bride tells them where they must go if they're to find him in chapter 6. And, and then with all this is done, the groom appears with no upbraiding, but with the most tender love for his bride in verses 4 through 10 of chapter six. The lovers are again united. The trial or the dream, if in fact it was a dream, is over. Lovely section, marvelous section. Uh, this trial or dream, it, it feels almost evangelistic, doesn't it? It does, you know, doesn't it? I think in many ways there, there is much that we can learn from the bride. As Christians, I mean, I've often thought that if we are in love with Jesus Christ, and if we have the opportunity to say why we love him and why we think he's the most wonderful, the most wonderful thing in the whole world in our lives, uh, that, that that would be attractive to, um, to so many. You know, I, the church runs courses on evangelism, you know, how to evangelize and all the rest of it. And it, it, it's kind of, you know, and I, I heard on the radio recently on, on one of the Christian stations, you know, the, the nervousness of some folk who are going out to, to witness for Christ in the street. And I'm I'm aware of uh, of a church that I attended years ago when I was on vacation in Hawaii. That um, you know, basically, th- these people just shared love for Christ, and and there was no course of on evangelism that was particularly necessary. You know, if we talk in terms of this is the love of our life, this is who Jesus is, um, this is why we love Him as much as we do, this is what He's done for me. I think people would be attracted to that. And would be inclined to follow, to search for this, this person who's made such an impact on our lives. I'm not against courses on evangelism. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I'm just saying that, that sometimes all you need to do is open your mouth. Mm. And just, when, you know, as opportunity arises or, or even to create opportunity to tell people that you're, you're a person in love with Jesus Christ. You know, and, and why you're in love with him and, and why, he's, why he means the world to you. I mean, just the way the bride spoke of the groom. The daughters of Jerusalem asked the question, you know, when, when she says to them, will you help me find my beloved? And they say, well, why? I mean, what's so special about him? Why, why should we bother? Why should we take the time? And she says, well, let me tell you about him. He is absolutely lovely. Mm. He, is, he is gorgeous beyond description. And immediately... They're out there, you know, and she's, she's having to catch up with them. You know, they're running all wildly to try to find him. Yeah, I think it's a great lesson for evangelism. I, I find it amazing. The Christians seem to be embarrassed about talking about Jesus or are or, or they, you know, reticent to talk about him for some reason or another. Well, why? I mean, if a young woman comes into the, uh, to the office and she's just been engaged, immediately, what does she do? She starts talking about 
her beloved. And everybody listens enthralled, you know? I mean, that's just the way it is. And, and why can't we do that for Jesus? Right. Why can't we be so enthralled by his love and what he's done for us that it just becomes natural for us at every opportunity just to say, you know, I, I just, I, I'd love for you to, to find this Christ. This is what he means to me. Mm. And not be so embarrassed that we're Christians. Yeah. Now, does this marriage, does it improve with time or do they live on the edge? Yeah, you'd think that they might live on the edge constantly, wouldn't you? This, is, this couple is quite amazing. But, but again, not, not unnatural, not, not exceptional. Um, no, I, I think the beautiful thing about the song is it, it does improve with time. Love does improve with time, as it should with the maturing of the years. Um, and, and so what you have here is there is, as the chapters unfold now into chapter, um, the end of chapter six into seven and eight, what you have is, is a greater intimacy, greater joy, greater peace, greater security in, in the relationship. Chapter six, verse 11 introduces, if you will, a new season of love. This is what I call the section, this section I call delight. Mm. And the bride is enjoying the fragrance of the relationship. You see that uh, in verses 11 and 12 of, of chapter six. You know, I went down to the nut orchard and looked at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded and whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my fancy set me in a chariot beside my prince. So you have then following what, what I would call a dance of joy, because in verse 13, you have the people calling the bride to dance. Turn, turn, O maiden of Shulam. And she modestly wonders why they wish to see her dance. And, and the people then describe the beauty of her body in motion. And they talk about her feet, her thighs, her navel, her belly, her breasts, her neck, her eyes, her nose, her head, her hair. And again, there are ten. Mm -hmm. So there are tenfold description of her loveliness. And we read in verse 5 of chapter 7, when they've finished this, that the king delights, or the king is held captive by her love. And he compares her to a slender and stately palm tree, symbolizing vitality and succor and bounty. He takes sensual delight in her. And then you have the bride surrendering herself to his love in verse 10 and into the beginning of chapter 8. So the bride abandons herself. I belong to my beloved his desires for me. There's that Hudson Taylor's third stage of grace, if you will, in verse 10. I belong to him and he loves me so. There's no longer any sense that, yes, that he belongs to me. It's I belong to him and that's all that really matters. And then in verses 11 through 13, she invites him to make love to her. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded and the grapes have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. And there I will give you my love. And, and she expresses her desire to, to make her love known to everybody. Oh, that you were like a brother to me. Then I could express my affection publicly, so to speak. Uh, if I met you outside, I would kiss you. No one would despise me. I would lead you, bring you into the house of my mother and, and, and I would give you spice wine and so forth and so on. So she, she's so overwhelmed by his love that she wants to make it public. And then she yields ultimately to his embrace. So that, oh, that his left hand were under my head and that his right hand embraced me. And then again, the little formula. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love 
until it so desires and so brings to a close that penultimate section of delight. So then chapter 8 verse 4 brings that one section to a close uh, and then introduces the final part of the book, uh, verses 5 through 14. What can you say about these final verses? Well, I've I've turned this last little section, uh, Destiny. These last 10 verses in the book are supremely lovely. You have, uh, for example, in the opening verses here from verse 5 and following, the daughters of Jerusalem again are, are drawing attention to the groom. They greet the procession, so to speak. He is her strength. He is her joy. He is her pride. And then you have this most beautiful dialogue between the couple in which they claim the other from birth. They affirm their, the strength of their love. They, they declare their love is unending and incomparable. And it's absolutely just, it's just beautiful. Set me as a seal upon your heart. You know, there's a sense in which, you know, we want to say that, that love is, is possessive here. You know, if you go back to verse 5, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? In other words, you know, that she, love means surrender in, in a sense there. Uh, Under the apple tree I wakened you, there your mother was in travail with you. Uh, there she bore you who was in, is, was in pain. So love, love can be painful. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. That love is possessive. It marks something that is final. It is irrevocable. It is irreversible. It never gives up. Love never gives up. It cannot bear the thought of, of separation. Even, even the grave the idea of one of them dying, you know, is, is an anathema to them. Uh, so you have this beautiful picture of claiming one another, of affirming their love for each other, of, of saying their love is unending and there's nothing in the world quite like it, and that many waters cannot quench love, neither can the rivers sweep it away because theirs is an eternal love. They cannot bear the thought of separation whatsoever. So the story reaches its climax with this many waters it cannot quench love. There is nothing in the world greater than love. That's what the book is, is stating. It is surrender. It's painful. It's belonging. It's forever. It's persevering. It's priceless. And as the story concludes, it contrasts sex for sex's sake and love for its sake. Sex can be bought. Love must be given. Mm. You know, and and then you have, you know, this concern about the little, uh, we have a little sister in verses 8 and 9. We have a little sister. Her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she's spoken for? If she's a wall, we'll build towers of silver. If she's a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. And in other words, the, the question that is raised by whomever here concerns the preparation for an engagement. If she's stable and virtuous, she will be adorned. But if she is unstable and promiscuous, she needs to be protected. It's just a little aside in the story. And then the contrast between the little sister and the bride, when she says, but my own vineyard, her own virginity, her own sexuality, her own sensuality, my own vineyard is mine to give. Love must be given. It is mine to give. A thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. I am a wall, my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. 
And so by way of emphasis, the bride here is fully mature. She's ready for lovemaking. She has kept herself pure. And now she invites him to intimacy. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. And that's how the book ends, with his invitation to intimacy. So this would be my final comment on the book, when all said and done, why the song may hold the secret to life itself. What is love and what's love got to do with it? Why and how is it a part of the human experiment? I think the Song of Solomon gives us the answer. That by this, the inclusion of this strange and lovely little book in the Holy Scripture, the song addresses the meaning of love, the meaning of sex, the meaning of human sensuality as divinely intended, as divinely given, and as divinely sanctified. Alan, thank you for shedding light on this very curious and perhaps underappreciated book of the Bible. As usual, I now want to read it all over again, uh, keeping what you've shared in mind. So as we look ahead, where should our next podcast take us? Well, I'm thinking it might be good to go back into the, the New Testament and uh, maybe to look at the Gospel of Mark. It, Mark's Gospel actually was the first Gospel. The others have, have largely, I mean, Mark, Matthew and Luke in particular, have largely copied from Mark. So it's good to get back to the basis and find out, you know, what is Mark all about? And, and Mark really is, is asked the question, who is Jesus Christ? Who, who is he really? And he proceeds to answer it in ways in which one might not totally expect. I love that. I love the book of Mark. So I look forward to that. Great. Well, please be sure to come to us with your thoughts, comments, and questions, either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at thewordisout.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.